Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. It's good to be back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I have a a really interesting story. I didn't remember how I got onto this. Somewhere on the internet, of course. And it was about a man named Wolf Rabin. Now, what a cool name, Wolf Rabin. And he got involved with Sam Manorino, who was, a, many of you all know, is a big-time Pittsburgh mafia member. And they did a international kind of a crime. And then I found there's a book on it, you know. And then it's by, I believe, a relative of Sam, of not Sam Manorino's, but of Wolf Rabin. And so I have that man here, David Rabinovich. Thanks a lot for coming on, David. Very nice. Thank you for inviting me, Gary. Let's correct one thing. In my family, we pronounce my surname Rabinovich. Rabinovich, more, okay. Yeah. A little more Russian. All know. right. So, a little more Russian. Uh, Russian. <laughs> my grandpa used to say, those Russians. <laughs> well, I'm the fortunate that my grandfather left Ukraine <laughs> in 1890. Oh, really? Interesting. David is an Emmy-winning documentary filmmaker and has a bunch of stuff out there so david why don't you tell the guys a little bit about your history your bona fides if you will you know this is pretty much all i've ever done since i was a teenager i had the good fortune to have some wonderful mentors including a bureau chief from pine magazine whom i ended up writing the cover story when i was 19 years old I grew up in Canada, so I worked a lot for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I was a pretty young age, I think I was maybe the youngest producer on staff at age 21 or 22. So made documentaries really all over the world. I moved to the United States 45 years ago and continued doing well. I think one of the most significant films I made in my early career uh, it was a film called Politics of Poison, which was an investigation of the use of the chemicals known as Agent Orange. The other kind of major production that I'll mention, because you can still find this, is a miniseries called Secret Files of the Inquisition. And this is a four-part docudrama based on files from the Vatican Archive and other archives in Europe that reveal just terrible things that were done to people in the name of the Catholic Church. Moving to Jukebox Empire, the mob and the dark side of the American dream, I found some of the work rather similar, because five years ago, the last 18,000 files that had been kept classified relating to the assassination of John F. Kennedy were declassified by the FBI and CIA to other agencies. And so piling through, I can't say I read 18,000 files, but several hundred of them, over 100 files contained references to my uncle and the activities that he was involved with, in particular in what the Department of Justice referred to as the largest money laundering scheme in history. So... I'll pause there for you, and you can start wherever you like, Gary. Right. Well, David, you know, that jukebox industry started with a guy named David Rockola in Chicago, and the mob saw that vending machine opportunity just like slot machines. It was, you know, vending machines, cigarette machines. They've always been involved in 
those kinds of machines because there's a lot of cash money that goes through that. Plus, they use them in bars and they always have all this interest in bars. And so it's just like a natural for the mob to be involved in the vending machine business. In this case, it's a jukebox vending machine business and to launder other cash money through that. So historically, that's been part of their business. I'm moving on to, to your story. You go across national, international boundaries. You go to, up into Canada. You've got connections in Canada yourself. Your family does, I think. Your relative, Wolf Rabin, tell us a little bit about him and how did he get connected with this mob boss named Sam Manorio? Sure. Gary, you, you raise a number of points. I'll go back to the first thing you said and, and start with that connection. Now, David Rocola, the jukebox pioneer, came from a little town in the province of Manitoba called Virgil, Manitoba. I grew up in the same town of my uncle, Hiratio, called Morgan, Manitoba. The two towns are about 100 miles apart. And in the late 1920s, my uncle, you know, he was aiming for the big time. He, he had big visions and wanted to score big. And he got on the train and took off for Chicago. When he left, my grandmother gave him, according to my dad, my grandmother gave, gave him a dollar. So he would never go broke. When he was dying, he gave it to his brother, who's also in the book. My uncle Leon, who was had a professional name of Lee Cagney because everybody thought he looked like Jimmy Cagney. <laughs> when he was dying, he gave it to my dad. My dad gave it to me. So I have the dollar that <laughs> he got when he left. And, you know, it's through artifacts like this that we connect directly to people and the stories. My uncle went to Chicago as a young man, and he was very adept at electronics. And he started out working in the early 1930s on the first car radios. And car radios, it was, it was a phenomenon. Even in the middle of the Depression, if you could afford to buy a car, paid extra for the radio. It was just an amazing thing. So he made a lot of money at that. The war came along, continued to make radios, in this case, contracts for the U.S. Army and the Navy. Then after the war, Contracts ended and his factory was quiet. And that's when the man you mentioned, Sam Manorino, came into the picture. Sam calls up my uncle, says, uh, let's meet. And Bill says, oh, why? What, what, what do you talk to me about? He says, well, you're good with electronics. And, you know, we can get the rights to a new jukebox that plays 30 records. Well, the most anything could play at the time was him. So it was going to revolutionize the industry. And you have to picture, this is 1945. Every jukebox in the United States, all five or 600,000 of them, needs to be replaced because the jukebox production had all stopped during the war. The factories were repurposed. And so my uncle asks Mandarino, well, why are you calling me? And he said, well, look, you know electronics, and here's the plans, take a look at them. So that engaged him, I think, with his electronics mind. But what also engaged him was it was a real shot to get rich, beyond rich. And so they went into business together. According to the documents, the deal was Bill would make the Jukeboxes, Manorino would handle sales. 
And that gets to what you were alluding to. Sales meant not just selling with machines, it meant collecting all those coins that <laughs> went through the machines that, of course, aren't reported to the IRS. And just if you go, well, I'll say a dozen years later, 1957, 58, the Apollo Committee in Congress, and they document, can't really document, but they suggest that at that time, approximately $2.5 billion a year was being collected from coin machines in the United States. And of course, not reported. Well, $2.5 billion in 1958. Yeah. You calculate that into today's money. That's a lot so, of money. David Roccolo, and Roccolo is the last jukebox company left in the United States, not, not owned by the family anymore, but Roccolo and Roccolo were really bitter rivals in the industry. David Roccolo, I mean, he goes on out of it. Your uncle's getting into it. Was his first name actually Wolf? My grandmother gave all of her children uh, Yiddish names. So he was a wolf or a Yiddish Belgol. Uh, we changed it right away, of course, growing up in a small town in the 1910s. He became, he was William or William. We have his school textbooks from 1915. <laughs> and with his signature in it, Willie Rabinoff. Well, later when he was in Chicago, he shortened the name of this pretty common among many Jewish people to yeah. a name that sounded European. Well, he just took the first five letters and, and raped. At that point, really only owned the family, we call it Wolf. As he got in with Sam Manorino and as they started doing business together, you know, the mob then has these international connections, especially in the 50s down in Cuba. There was a lot of money going down into Cuba and they had a lot of business interests down there. And they were connected to the New York crime families, you know, Mayor Lansky and, and all those. And, and so now what I found really fascinating was this all of a sudden international connection and this washing the money scheme that they got caught up in. Well, here, uh, let me make the connection for you, and then we can pick it up from there. So building the, the gift box, which was called the Maestro, is the, the name of it. It was an enormous success. And my uncle bought a surplus plane from the U.S. Navy, a Lockheed Lodestar, 14-seat troop transport plane. And he barnstormed the country in the plane, selling jukeboxes. So the thing was really big. And, but it blew up in a lawsuit over the patent rights, a lawsuit filed by David Roccola. So see <laughs> connections are all right. Roccola, I think, believe a little bits of this, Roccola was tied in behind the scenes with Senator Howard Capehart. Senator Capehart had been the sales manager for the Wurlitzer Company, who really put them on the map with their jukeboxes. In fact, he saved the Wurlitzer Company, was going to go out of business, and he brought them his jukebox plans. So, but then he went into politics, got elected, but behind the scenes, he did everything he could to protect his connections, shall we say, yeah. from the jukebox industry. And you can find more about this in Robert Kennedy's book, because Kennedy was the counsel for the McClellan Committee investigating the 
toy machine industry and labor racketeering mm -hmm. in the late 1950s. The maestro, Bill's jukebox, it all blew up when it went to the Supreme Court, and they actually sent the marshals into the factory to shut everything down. After that, his, his wife, his great strong influence on him, and she said, you know, Bill, you got to get rid of these guys. This deal with the devil, they'll never let go of you. And he was pretty concerned because they'd invested a lot of money. He needed to build a foundry. I mean, he had huge visions of what to do. And he could pull it off. But he owed them a lot of money. So he was pretty concerned. And Natarino said, you're not going to worry about it. We just may, may need your assistance sometime, and we'll give you a call. I really think there's about a 10-year period where they weren't involved at all. But the call came in 1958. And to give you the context for this, this is now in the second two-thirds of my book, Jukebox Empire. Castro and the revolutionaries were gaining steam in Cuba. And as you know, Barry the Mob had a very strong investment, very huge investments in Cuba with all the casinos. And their relationship with the dictator, with Batista, that was fine. He took a huge scale and business went on. But they were concerned that Castro coming in, they, they would lose this enormous source of revenue. What to do about it? And here, the story becomes a kind of real-life Ocean's Eleven. They decided, okay, well, let's double down. We'll support Batista and Castro. And whoever wins will still have, you know, they'll get a piece, the same piece. They will still have our casinos. Well, how are you going to do that? You need arms. Where are you going to get arms? You can get them from the Army, U.S. Army, National Guard. They got lots of arms. Well, you've got to pay somebody to do that. Okay, you could do that, but where are you going to get the money? Banks have money. So this is how, what I'm laying out for you, Gary, is how, Organized crime became an entirely integrated operation that absolutely parallels legitimate business. So money, there were a group of gangsters based out of Montreal, and they had schemes to go in and, and uh, blast into bank vaults. So how this began, they went into a vault in a little town, Brockville, Ontario. And they pulled off what the FBI called the biggest bank robbery in the world. And the estimates, we recall the newspaper stories day by day, it starts $2 million, $3 million, and it just keeps going up $14 million in 1958. A couple of hundred million today. But it wasn't cash. It was the next best thing. What they took were bearer bonds. Now, bearer bonds are like cash. It's not like a corporate bond. It's whoever holds it, owns it. But these had to be made fungible, shall we say. That's a polite term. <laughs> and that's, that's when Juan Arena, who was one of putting this whole deal together, called Lou. said, here's a guy who knows how to deal with international money. He's got the uh, savoir faire that our guys don't know him. I mean, uh, so, you know, people think that because of the name value, 
the Meyer Lansky was the gangster who developed this business of how do you turn illegitimate money into business enterprises. Yeah. But he wasn't the only one. <laughs> Although I will say that in the course of this research, you could even find, I mean, they all stayed at one hotel in New York. They all like to stay at the Warwick. And you can get down through the FBI records of who was in which room number, which night, and what phone calls they made, because all the records are in so that's where they came to my uncle Bill and said, we've got all these bonds and we need to invest them so that we have the cash to pay the other guys who are going to get the arms from the National Guard. That's how the pieces all fit. So the bonds themselves were legitimate. So I think this fits a category of if you don't ask, then you don't know what you don't want to know. <laughs> so I think there was, when you get to the court case, that was part of the events. Yeah. But they came to him with all this money, and he worked out the plan to go to Europe and convert it into cash through Swiss banks. I guess they did that because they were stolen, and communications weren't what they are today. Another thing they used to do is then go take them to a bank and borrow money against them. And then the bonds would just lay in the bank being held, you know, as collateral for that money. Then they'd never intend on paying it back. And then when the banks would cash the bonds, they'd find out they were stolen in the United States. But they did this because they probably would never find out they were stolen. In, in well, that, that's exactly what worked. He did that with, with small amounts at a local bank in Chicago where the bank's security was they knew him from his businesses. Yeah. So, oh, no problem. Not with small amounts. With big amounts, you know, would draw attention anywhere. So that's when he went to Europe and uh, made deals with a number of different Swiss banks. He also interviewed a German bank. They set up a shell company in Liechtenstein to follow these things through. It's very out of Ocean's Eleven, very, very before Ocean's Eleven. It's the real thing. uh, In fact, in the trial for the money laundering, they brought over a number of these bankers to testify. And there is a German banker who testified. He said, Raven offered to buy my bank. Now, if you're talking about, about nerves, and thinking big. Yes. And Seneca asked him, well, what's your source of financing? And the response, and this is all out of the trial transcript, the response is, we have unlimited financing. Yeah. Every coin that came through every machine in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Unlimited <laughs> financing. The mob would own a Swiss bank, own their own Swiss bank. If you're well, you didn't those money, but that was, that was the idea. <laughs> yes. I can see where that was leading. That's uh, that's fascinating. Did you find out anything about how they got this cash money down to Cuba then, to Batista or Castro? Did that come out in the trial? Well, yes. They didn't send the money to Castro. They got the armaments. The armaments came. So I fill in the gaps here. What do you say? I said it's like any legitimate business. You need the product. You need the financing. You need the shipping. Right? And so now they have the money. So then there's another whole crew that comes in, a real dirty-ass 
bad guy named Joe Marola, who is a whole other story, but he was in so tight with the CIA that after he was convicted in the gun running aspect of this, JFK pardoned it. Mm-hmm. There was no reason ever made public. But I don't want to get too far ahead of the story to answer your question. Now they had the money going, but the money from the bank, just like anybody else would, except they blasted through five feet of concrete and steel. They set up the accounts in Europe, so now you had to draw on the money. Then they got another group who went into the National Guard Armory at Canton, Ohio, and drove out with four vans full of armaments. That's like over 300 M1 rifles and machine guns and borders. <laughs> well, you need arms. The government has arms. That's where you get them. <laughs> then they had the arms. Well, how are you going to get them to Cuba? You need transportation. They stole private planes from the docks in Cuba and Florida. And they had a fleet, a fleet <laughs> of beachcraft, other arms, ferrying and stuff back and forth. Huh. Well, of course, it, it drew the attention of law enforcement at different places. And the incident that's in my book is they were, were tracking a particular pilot, and Manorino, San Manorino, had given the order to send this shipment of weapons to Cuba. There's actually an air chase with the U.S. Border Patrol, mm-hmm. and uh, we're tracking it, and they uh, forced the pilot down, and things unraveled from there. Huh. I guess this is why there was so much information in the Kennedy assassination files, because it then, because of the CIA and Cuba was all wrapped up in that, so then they jumped on this, and, and I would imagine the CIA probably glommed onto some of those guys and their transportation networks in order to help them when they get on into the Bay of Pigs. And so that's, uh, that's just a fascinating story, man. Well, that's exactly it. And it came to me in a rather interesting way. I had written a, a draft of the book and some of this was rather sketchy and you can only write you know, in this case, what's factual, what I have yeah. documentation for. And then, under something called the Kennedy Assassinations Records Act, in 1992, Congress had given the agencies 25 years to release any classified files in any way related to the assassination of JFK. They didn't make the deadline. So there were, by 2018, a year later, there were, another 18,000 files mm. that were declassified. Well, that didn't mean they were automatically on the internet or digitized, but they were declassified and they developed access to them, hard copy files, and I found references to this whole paper, including my uncle, in over 100 files. Mm. So I want to be clear, I don't think he or this group were in any way involved with the assassination of JFK. That's years later. And at that time, my uncle was already in prison. So that's, <laughs> Don't that's, spoil the uh, ending there. But, <laughs> but the connection, I'm being the agencies 
had collected all this under their various categories related to Cuba, and I think that's why I've been suppressed it mm-hmm. quite recently. Sam Manorino, did he get charged as part of the conspiracy here? I didn't really remember yes. that from my story I did on um, him. In the money laundering trial, there were four men who were charged. Uh, my uncle, Wolf Raven, Sam Manorino, Norman Rothman, who was a nightclub and casino operator in Miami and Cuba, and a man named George Rosman, who was a German lawyer who had been my uncle's fixer dealing with the Cuban, with the Swiss banks. Mm-hmm. The indictments were filed in 1959 to show the influence of the mob in Chicago where everything was filed. It didn't come to trial for three years. Nobody wanted to touch it. And when they finally brought him, and even the first judge retired rather than (laughs) than adjudicate the trial. When it finally came to trial, the first 23 witnesses were excused. Nobody wanted to be on the jury. (laughs) (laughs) The the, the judge threw a shit fit. (laughs) (laughs) They they made a circus out of this courtroom before anything started. Those are the four who were indicted in the trial. My uncle's lawyer was, um, first thing, uh, first name escaped me. His last name is is Gorber. And he was Jimmy Hoffa's lawyer. Mm. It (laughs) a Teamsters leader was on trial. So you see how right in there, you know, uh, all these people were. You need a good lawyer. Why you get Hoffa's lawyer? And they all had the lawyers who were, were all part of this. Yeah. So um, there's another, uh, Sad Manorino's lawyer brought through this trial, but in earlier events was um, Charlie Margiotti. And Charlie Margiotti had been elected uh, Attorney General of the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, he was the first Italian-American to hold a statewide office mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. And he was their guy. So the, when he was actually, uh, he worked closely with my uncle because they made Marginati. He was the front man. He was the chairman of the board of the jukebox company. Uh, he was also Manorino's representative on the board of directors of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, so you can see where they're, they're And also, I mean, the Manorinos, they own the oil wells in Pennsylvania. They, they own mining interests. Mm-hmm. So this was, was all connecting in, in uh, it just led me into all these these paths. That, uh, because I, I uh, uh, you know, I really like the dog with the bow of the research, as I'm sure <laughs> I you, tell. you are, and, yes. and uh, as a detective, you get onto something <laughs> and you just have to know more and what happened once. My uncle was indicted, Manorino was indicted, Rothman was indicted, the district attorney uh, really screwed up because when they called up the, the indictments, he didn't produce Rothman. The, the judge said, well, the defendant has to be present. And he said, well, I can't get him here. He's already in prison on the gun running charge. <laughs> so so the, the judge had to issue a writ of habeas corpus mm-hmm. to bring Rothman out of prison in Atlanta to Chicago uh, for the trial. But wow. um one by one, 
they got up. They decided um, Rothman, he fixed it. He was, they made a deal, and he, because he knew so much about Cuba, they reduced his sentence on the gun running and, and they let him out of this trial. So he's already convicted, we'll let him out of this trial. The German lawyer, um, he convinced them that he didn't know anything about any of it other than making these introductions. Well, come on, really? Uh, Sam Manorino, I'm pretty convinced from everything I've read, he fixed it. We only need one guy on the jury to, to dissent. Yeah. You know, uh, one, you just need one out of 12. And that's what these mob lawyers were known for. That you could fix the jury, that was the easiest thing to do. But just another aside, uh, Gormer, my uncle's lawyer, um, was later convicted of witness tampering, but was released after one day on the order of Thurgood Marshall because uh, they got the evidence through a wiretap, yeah. which, which had, they, they had, didn't have permission for. Finally, it gets down to, so Manorino gets off. And then what my uncle told his sister, he said, well, somebody had to take the fall. Yeah. They would have bought me out of it, but that wouldn't have been so good for me. So it was better to do my time. And then they reduced it. He was given a 10 year sentence, but ultimately it's spent 30 months in this. Oh, yeah. Not bad for <laughs> for that big of a crime. <laughs> that, that much of, that's, I tell you, uh, David, that's a heck of a story. <laughs> that is one heck of a story. Well, there's. there's a lot more in the book. I I know we don't guys were not giving it all away. There's a lot more in that book, so you you need to get that book. I'll have links in the show notes to Amazon uh, on for that book. Very good, Jukebox Empire: The Mob and the Dark Side of the American Dream. David Rabinovich, I really appreciate you coming on the show, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Gary, a pleasure to speak with you. Don't forget, I like to ride motorcycles, so look out for motorcycles when you're out there driving around. And if you have a problem with PTSD and you're a vet, go to the VA website and get the hotline number. If you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, you know, our good friend Anthony Ruggiano has a hotline number and he works in and runs a treatment center down in Florida. But he can help you no matter where you are in the United States. It's a toll free number. So thanks a lot, guys. And I really appreciate you coming on the show, David. It's been a fascinating talk.